Support for this podcast comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to policyholders who focus on keeping their employees safe. More at TexasMutual.com. I'm speaking today with Neil Leatherberry. When we first became friends in San Antonio, Texas, Neil was working at the ultimate high-risk, high-reward type of biomedical firm. A mutual friend described Neil's life ambition as He's trying to cure cancer. But then that firm closed. He moved to Austin for another firm, and then he moved again to Durham, North Carolina. The nature of Neil's work, which is seeking scientific and medical breakthroughs with not yet proven techniques, it's a certain kind of very high-risk, very high-reward career. This is the risky end of the pool, and I wanted to reconnect with Neil to hear about it. This is No Hill for a Climber, From Texas Public Radio, I'm Michael Taylor. So, Neil, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Can you just tell me briefly what you studied in school and also what your current job is at Precision Biosciences in Durham, North Carolina? Sure. So, in school, I studied chemical engineering, and this was back in the late 80s when biotechnology was really just becoming a thing, and institutions were just starting to have biosciences-focused engineering programs. And so I did a short stint in the bio program at Rice, but really my focus was traditional chemical engineering. Right now, I am currently the vice president of chemistry manufacturing and controls at a gene editing company here in Durham, North Carolina called Precision Biosciences. All right. So I think of your career, it feels like an example of the cluster theory in finance and economics where cities or regions develop a dominance in certain areas and specializations. And so I'm thinking of, you know, Silicon Valley or Seattle, where there's a reason why for 70 years, the world beating techs have come out of this kind of tiny geographic area. And by contrast, when you're in a place like San Antonio, unfortunately, it feels like you had to leave and then go to Austin. But then in a sense, you also couldn't stay in Austin. So what, is that yeah. related to this idea of they also didn't have a critical mass for what you're trying to do? It's very much true. Um, and I know that particularly in San Antonio, they're trying to focus on how to develop this cluster. And a, a number of companies have come together to try to foster this, to entice other companies to grow. And what it takes or what it seems to take is one company to be extremely successful and to be able to remain local to engender those clusters and those spin-outs. And it really hasn't happened in San Antonio. And I think it's a couple of combinations. One is educational institutions. San Antonio has some good schools, Trinity, UTSA, but we don't have the really high-end universities that are spinning out students that will support these particular industries. So there was this company in San Francisco that was one of the first ones to develop monoclonal antibodies. And from there, they got very successful and spun out a whole biotech industry in the San Francisco area. In the Boston area, they're all things biotech. And a lot of biotechnology companies are coming out of Boston. Durham, in particular, had some great success with vaccine companies. And so we came became a center for vaccine manufacturing. And I think that's the real benefit that you see from this hub or from this major center concept, right? It brings in the talent, it disseminates it across other small companies. 
And it is that main success that has really sparked the, the ecosystem for biotech here, in particular in North Carolina. So even the death of a company or the departure of a company doesn't mean the end of the city as a cluster. If, if the same employees stay and they're like, oh, well, I guess I'm out of a job. I guess I have some talents and I'm going to start something new in my related field. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I think that there needs to be sort of a large mass that can spin out, right? So as that large group of, of employees either is asked to relocate, some of them will, but a lot of them won't because they have families here or they just simply like the area. I'm a little bit obsessed with the idea of success in the business world. And I think about your pretty heady ambitions for your own, you know, what you're going to achieve in your life. And yet, at the same time, the casino analogy of what you do, very high risk, high reward, will this make it or not? You only have a couple of chips to place on the roulette table over the course of your life. And I'm like, what if you never hit the number? <laughs> how, how do you deal with that? Um, yeah. That's hard. That's the really hard part, right? Because you're right. I mean, you, you, like you say, you only have so many chips to play or so many hands that you're dealt. And... You get better at making your bets. And so to extend the metaphor, you know, when you're learning to play poker, you play with other small stakes players and you learn the game, right? As you get better, you're able to play in bigger tournaments. You get more experience. You know how to play the game a little bit better and you get more chips to play or at least a bigger pot to play with. And I think that the analogy there is the experience that you've gained playing in the small leagues. And so that's sort of been the, the story of my career. Started out very small, very scrappy company, learned by doing. But now I have, you know, that, that tangible experience of taking a drug from early concept all the way through first stages of clinical trials. I take that skill set, I do it again on a larger stage, right? A bigger indication, uh, a more promising drug, better funding, you can do better. But you do want to make an impact. And Absolutely. I mean, I, this is maybe not a fair question, but what happens if the stuff never makes it into to making humans healthier? Yeah, um, and that is the heartbreak of biotech, right? You know, you have to understand going in that only one in 10 products that make it to the first stage of clinical studies actually will make it all the way through to something that you register with the FDA. And even at that, that's no guarantee of success, right? A lot of things still fail even after commercial launch. That requires a sense of perpetual optimism, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that, all right, this one didn't, didn't fly, but I'm still willing to try again because maybe the next one will, right? And that you don't get defeated by that failure because you have to know that Failure is the default, and it's the rare exception that you make it all the way through to a truly successful product that isn't actually able to help patients at the end of the day. And so, you know, there's been this concept, particularly in the technology world, of failing fast mm -hmm. so that you can move on to the next thing. We sort of have a similar concept in the world of biotech, but fast for us means something under six years. You never know until you go into this first patience. This optimism that you're talking about, I mean, is that you? Are, are you this perpetual optimist? 
I think I am. I think it's a mixture of intrinsic optimism, but I think it's also learned behavior, right? Um, you have to understand, and it really is a hard lesson that the, the default expectation is that it's not going to be successful. And how do you live with that? What do you do with that? Yeah, that feels really hard. <laughs> Yeah, like for for decades, <laughs> for for decades, right? Yeah. Uh, at least fives of years, you know, mm-hmm. um, years at a time. I Having, find that I find that very difficult to deal with the idea that there's failure, and there's success. The other side of it, failure. Was this my doing, or could I have done yeah. anything different? Did I do everything great, and this is just the nature of the beast, or could I have been better? That's very hard to separate. I find. It is. And then how do you process if part of the failure really, in fact, was on you, that you either didn't know enough or didn't understand enough or didn't dig deep enough before you took it into the clinic to make the difference between success and failure? And, you know, I've been there, too, right? Being fairly naive or new to the the process or, quite frankly, you know, the whole technology was all brand new and you learned a lot, and in retrospect, you know, we could have done this one thing differently, and it might have made the difference between success, but you only got the one bite at the apple, and you have to move on at this point. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Neil, let's talk about your husband, Fernando, and what it's like to be a gay man in the corporate world 2021 versus when you were starting out. Last summer, Texas Mutual sent $330 million to resilient companies who work hard at working safe. It's their 23rd consecutive year of distributing dividends and helping businesses invest in a bright future. Since 1999, they've paid out more than $3.4 billion to employers who share their commitment to building a stronger, safer Texas. Learn more about how Texas Mutual is changing the way workers' comp works for you at texasmutual.com rewarding. So you're married. Your husband, Fernando, has to accompany you on these leaps of optimism into the new company with a, sounds like a five-year window. How does he deal with that? Where, look, this, this is probably a five-year commitment. I hope it works. On the other hand, we might have no product at the end of five years, and then we may need to move again. Like, is it hard on him? Well, he's kind of a saint in that regard. Um, <laughs> okay. But, you know, for him, two things. He has a job that's infinitely portable. He has been working from home for the last 20 years. He's primarily in sales. And so all he has to do is close his laptop in city A, open it again in city B, and he's up and running like nothing has changed. So that's the first real advantage to um, his particular job and his situation. But also, he grew up in the military and was in the military himself. So packing up, changing cities, Transplanting your life to a new location is normal for him. Right. And so he's a champ about it. It's like, all right, it's time to move. Here's the checklist. Here's what you do. He just goes into army move mode. And in a weekend, the house is set up again in the new place. That's good. It, it, it is military precision like nothing I've ever seen. And people who have watched us do it are stunned every time that we're able to do it. So... I will say it is rare and appreciated that I have a partner who understands that and is willing to to live with that type of challenge. That is great. 
you and Fernando were together in an era, I think, in which he is operating under the don't ask, don't tell of the army. And, and I'm also interested in hearing about what it was like when you first started in your career as a gay man, but, but not out versus 2021. What stands out as the biggest difference between today and when you started your career? Well, the world in, call it, you know, 1998 was still very much sort of that don't ask, don't tell. People were sort of acknowledging that, you know, gay people actually existed in the world and lived all types of lives. But it was not really an open thing, right? You, you couldn't show up at the office Christmas party with your same-sex partner. Mm-hmm. That was not really a thing, and certainly not in San Antonio, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I remember about that time is really having to compartmentalize my life. And in retrospect, thinking about the energy that it took to live in those two worlds, to sort of hide or not discuss your personal life at work and to find ways to to sort of fit in making yourself small so that you're not seen excessively and trying to find ways to balance that with entertaining professional ambitions, right? How do you have a career in advance without really playing the the office politics piece of that, engaging in out-of-work social relationships with your coworkers and certainly your your boss? That was the real challenging part for me at the time. Did you ever have to lie? Just outright, flat out say, make up stuff? Um, I'm sure I did, you know, when particularly like, during social events, you're like, you get an invitation, say, oh, bring your girlfriend. I'm like, uh, okay. Uh, no girlfriend right now. It was things like that. Um, I tried not to overtly lie, but I'm sure there were situations where I just felt like I had to. Were there times when people found out and you suffered professionally or personally at that time? You know, I had one boss at the time and, and she found out and she's like, I don't care. My brother's gay. Mm -hmm. So in retrospect, all of the energy that I was expending hiding that part of my life was probably really wasted energy because I was way more worried about it than everybody else. Do you have gay colleagues at work who are younger who just never experienced what you experienced? Um, What's that like now? Like, does that play a role? Does your sexuality play a role now in your workplace that's different? It, it does play a different role now. What has happened recently is that I have sort of been asked to lead diversity and inclusion teams, which was weird to me because at the end of the day, I'm still a white guy with a fair amount of privilege. But it's this weird situation where because of my sexuality, I am sort of, I don't want to say viewed as a the, the token, but as a, well, as someone in a leadership position who checks a box of a minority role, I am sort of tasked to be a voice for diversity for the company, which is a little bit weird, um, especially for other represent- underrepresented minorities. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, I, I think I get it. You're being asked to maybe represent or be the voice for groups f- for whom you don't have their experience, and yet you're the corporate face of diversity, so you, you better do this right 
and, and yet you haven't, you haven't lived, you haven't, you don't have their lived experience. No, I mean, that's exactly right. I have a different lived experience, which I don't want to minimize that value, but I've still had to learn an awful lot about other people's lived experience in order to, you know, fairly try to represent them. And I, and I do try to fairly represent them to the best of my ability. And so learning more a lot about women's experiences and, and women of color and their experiences, you know, in particular African-Americans and how their chronic underrepresentation in particular in life sciences is such a challenge right now. And what a circular challenge that is, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, there are very, very few black scientists. And because there are very few black scientists, no black people in school see role models to as, as someone to follow or to aspire to. And because of that, they don't go into life sciences. And therefore, there's this very shallow pool of African-American scientists to draw from. And so therefore, recruiting becomes very hard. And so it's just this, how do we break this cycle? And it's a challenge for the entire industry it's almost the cluster theory of mentorship and human capital management where if you don't have a critical mass in the medium and executive ranks, how do you get the lower ranks to even join the industry? Uh, sometimes it takes a critical mass to continue the critical mass, kind of like you know, it, it's in cities that have specializations. It, it absolutely does. Uh, selfishly, I want you all to move back to San Antonio because I uh, extremely, not only for your friendship, but your chemistry-informed cooking skills for the ultimate <laughs> dinner party. I want that experience again, Neil, and I, and I want you to come back and do that. But, uh, you know, hopefully after your, maybe after your company just hits it really big and you can do full-time chemistry-informed cooking. Well, I'd love that, right? I've often said if I hadn't become a, a chemical engineer, I probably would have become a pastry chef. And you would have been a damn good one. Uh, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate this, Neil. This is a really interesting conversation to me. Um, and uh, thank you for taking your time. I appreciate it very much, Michael. No Hill for a Climber is produced by Ryan Kyloth with editing help from Ben Henry and Dan Katz. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. I'm Michael Taylor. Talk to you next time.